Uh-oh, it looks like we piqued your interest in the hideout. First of all, let me tell you what the hideout is not. The hideout is not for hustlers, for grinders, or for people who are looking for a shortcut to what the world calls success. The hideout is about growing as men, creating lifelong friendships, and having the time of our lives. Are you ready to tap in to the endless source that will take you from success to significance? The hideout is two and a half days of hiking, biking, and doing the little things that it takes to create lifelong friendships. I find that joy is nothing more than falling in love with your current circumstances and allowing magic to happen. And that's when we see growth in every area of your life. Have you accomplished your goals professionally and financially? and you still thirst for something more? Has success in these areas come at the expense of far more valuable things like your family, your children, and your relationships? Alignment in business, strategic partnerships, and joint ventures all come from true relationships. The Hideout is designed to get to know people before you'll ever meet them. This is not your typical mastermind. The Hideout is focused on the one thing that will fuel everything joy. And when joy is overflowing in your life, you'll find growth in your marriage, your relationships, and oh yeah, your business. Welcome to the Kelly Cardenas podcast where attitude is everything. I know everyone's been getting on me because the commercial at the end, it says September 23rd through the 25th. The winter is coming, everybody. The hideout, we have the dates. It's February 2nd through the 4th. And what I was telling Riggs uh, earlier is that people ask me about this all the time. They're like, "How? sell me on the, the, the hideout. How do you sell it? And I said, I don't sell it. It sells out every single time, but the people who know they need it, need it. And they call and they sign up. We don't do any, you know, uh, promotion on it, really, anything like that. It's, it is what it is. It's, it's the people that are locked in and realizing that they need to accomplish more than the things that they do in their business, that their families are more important, their purpose is more important, and, and getting to that significance level is the, the most important. So um, I'm just, I'm so excited today because it's right in line with exactly what we were talking about. This man, I met through a friend, and the friend that I have named Ivan has probably one of the largest hearts that I've ever met in my entire life. We became fast friends right away, and uh, he let me know about uh, about Riggs, and he and that Riggs is doing something that's absolutely changing the world, and not only changing the world through the the actual tasks and the things that they're doing within their company, but the way in which they're going about it. And the way that that Ivan connected was because of the heart of the man, not because of just what he was doing. And that's what the uh, for everyone that's been rocking with the podcast since the very beginning or if you've just started listening we are about chronicling amazing people who happen to do amazing things and this is probably one of the greatest examples of it in in addition to that he's absolutely changing the world and helping people to realize that there's one thing that's been under our nose the whole entire time that all of us need to be locked into and investing in which is water so please welcome to the show the Founder and CEO of Origin Clear, Mr. Riggs Eckleberry, and I said it right. Welcome to the show, my brother. Well done, Kelly, and thank you. It's such a pleasure. 
Well, let's let's jump right into that. I mean, some people think that I mean, water. You you compared water to oil and gas, and most people are like, ah, I, how how are we going to make that connection point? How are you able to make that connection point and help people to realize how important water is in our community? Well, Kelly, of course, you realize that for the, for the longest time, water has been a monopoly, meaning that it's been handled by, you know, the water districts, the the utilities. Um, and it's been very, um, we assume it's fine. You know, the water, we open the faucet, the water comes out, we flush the toilet, water goes away. And we assume things are fine. We hear about, you know, oh, Flint and Jackson, Mississippi, Compton, but these are just, you know, little, they, they, they come and they go, right? And, and nobody worries too much about it. The truth is, is that these uh, emergencies actually are signals of a much deeper problem in water. Uh, and that's the simple fact that for reasons that I'm not entirely sure, water does not get the funding it should get. And so we have a big problem with that monopoly in that it's underfunded by the, literally by, 20, by $75 billion each year. So the water infrastructure in our country falls behind currently by $75 billion a year, and it's not being caught up. How could we ever catch up on that? If it, I mean, if I was losing seventy-five dollars a year, I can understand. I mean, if your if your family's losing seventy-five, you're going to be in debt. I mean, pretty quick. If you're losing seven hundred and fifty thousand, <laughs> you you. I mean, unless you're rigs, you might as well mail it in. But seventy-five billion a year. How how can we recover this? And where is the opportunity in 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 the water space? Right. So here here's the issue. First of all, let's recognize that. 89% of the demand on the water systems is from industry and agriculture, not the people. When you hear about the droughts in California and the need to have short showers and so forth, that's only affecting 11% of the usage. The 89% is what really matters. Now those roughly nine out of 10 um, usage is really uh, impacting the water districts and they're, not, they're just not set up for it. So that's a clue to the solution. The second part of it is that even if you had the money, where would you put these sewage plants, right? There's all this NIMBY problems. There's no room. These are big systems. If they're not built now, they're not going to be built. And thirdly is the amount of time it's going to take. Uh, give you an example. Miami-Dade County has over 100,000 uh, septic tanks all over the county because they developed without a proper visit, uh, urban plan. And now those septic tanks are infecting the groundwater and making all, all kinds of terrible things happen. So they say, okay, we're going to build sewage uh, lines out to all of these at a cost of $6 billion, which we don't have. Well, first of all, it's not going to cost $6 billion. It'll cost sixteen, And it'll take 20 years of streets being torn up and so forth. That leads you to the solution, which is why not just do a rebate program for these individual sites to become self-sufficient for water treatment. And you've solved the problem in, in a matter of months. And that is the dream and the reality of decentralized water. So help me with this, Riggs, because I mean, now when I say this is gonna be a broad statement and some people are gonna be like, well, but you're truly living in my head, the American dream. The reason why I say it is because you were doing something at a very high level and you've been very, very successful in, in, in past careers. And then you found something that your heart was completely locked into. 
Talk to us about that jump, right? Because there, you were in different industries before you started in this. And this is something that obviously is going to be beneficial financially. But the first part of it is that you are actually solving a problem that you're seeing and that your heart is in. Can you talk about that? Well, actually, I went into this space kicking and screaming. And the reason is that, first of all, I loved high tech. Um, I, from starting in the 80s onward, I just... I loved the speed of high tech. I loved when the dot com came along. I was like, yeah, uh, had some great liquidities, you know, where you you jump into a company five months later, you just get sold. Like, thank you very much, that kind of stuff. And so you get spoiled really by the speed at which these things move. Um, early 2000s, I was in a company that I helped take public. I was the number two, uh, got it onto the NASDAQ. But in the process, I was dissatisfied with the the bones of the company. I felt that it was not going to succeed long-term and sure enough, it did not. And I decided, you know what? I need to become a CEO myself to be kind of to determine my own fate. And that's when I called up a fund and these good friends of mine, now they're, they, they were friends, now they're great friends. I said, you know, I want to be a CEO. And they said, uh, yeah, we think you can be, but we're not doing tech anymore. We're doing green. This is 2000 six so green was like all the rage um you know only later did we did we ask people did you ever make money in green no never made money in green but nonetheless it was the thing and um and they said we think there's a future in algae for biofuels and why because petroleum is only out is fossilized algae that's what it is right so it's not dinosaurs there were not enough dinosaurs to make all the oil in the world it's these giant deposits of algae that grew. You know, we had at one time 30% CO2 in the world and the algae grew to suck that up and we ended up at 0.001, whatever it was. And that made this planet livable. Now, that algae, of course, now is fossilized and it's being burnt. And of course, we got this big CO2 problem. They felt, and this is true, that if you make um, petroleum today from algae that you grow, then it's a it's a balance. You you don't you don't have carbon penalty. It's a carbon. It's it's you, 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 it gives you out as much. You know, in other words, it absorbs as much carbon as it uses. So it's carbon neutral. And so you've got a new fuel that can replace fossil fuels. Because look at it this way: what have we got right now? We have cars with engines. So the natural thing is to do something that's plug compatible with the existing systems, and that was the dream at the time. Well, I tell you, I had a lot of fun with that because we called ourselves Origin Oil at the time, the original oil, algae being the original oil. And I was on all, you know, um, you know, Varney on Fox called me, I'll call you algae man, you know, all that. It was so much fun. And then the oil industry discovered fracking and the price of oil went from $120 a barrel. And remember, this is early in the 2000s, down to as low as $35. And all of a sudden, algae became, I like to say, a science experiment. And I had a public company, like, okay, there's no option of running a science experiment. That's not going to work. Ultimately, uh, and there's a long story, but basically we took our technology for pulling algae out of the water, algae harvesting, that was our specialty, into pulling the sewage out of the water, and that became our, our play. We ended up in the water industry. And that was a cold shock because the water industry, first of all, nobody notices it. It's not sexy. 
I was at, I remember visiting Fast Company in New York and I'm talking about water and sewage and she's like, <laughs> oh God, kill me now. You know, uh, she was like, Dude, okay, I don't get it. I just don't get it. So everybody thinks water is important, but they don't want to be, they don't want to know about the details of sewage. It's not just not part of your, your excitement. You, you get more, more excited about making sourdough. So uh, what I had to do was, first of all, um, figure out how to get visibility for the company, because that's my number one job is to get a company that, that, that really resonates and, you know, has a mission that excites people and so forth. But underlying that is what is the genuine problem in the water industry? And it's the fact that it's kind of like frozen in amber, like ching, there it is. And everything's fine, no problem, except it's not doing its job. Um, in the world, 80% of all the sewage is not treated at all, um, which means it all goes into the rivers, or oceans, groundwater. It's just horrible, right? Now, in the U.S., it's not as bad, but still, we have a problem. And uh, I just saw the lower Hackensack River in New Jersey was declared a one of you know, America's most polluted rivers again. Um, and so we have more than 100 rivers that are terribly polluted in America. And this is 2022. I mean, come on, this is ridiculous, right? So we have a lot of disconnect between people think things are fine and they're not. So the next question is what to do about it. And I've spent years getting there. And I'm glad to tell you that we figured something out. So Riggs, help me with this, because I think a lot of times when, when we speak on a global part, then there'll be the people who are like, well, it doesn't affect my region. When we speak on a regional part, people say, well, it doesn't affect me locally. Then if we talk on a local sense, they're like, nah, it doesn't affect my family. Then if we talk about family, they're like, nah, it doesn't really hit me personally. Can you, can you take us down that rabbit hole to help us to understand what don't, let's start off with the, with the, uh, the, the, the globally part. What don't we understand? Like as a, as a, as a person, cause again, I mean, I find it's, it's November 8th. People are voting today and yes. a lot of people are like, nah, I mean, I live in X and you know, my vote doesn't really count. It's not good. And I find that we as Americans, a lot of times take on that thought process. What don't yes. we, let's start it off. What don't we know globally? Take a lot for granted. First of all, globally, you know, six, the 6,000 kids die every single day in the world from water, right? Over a billion people suffer from um, water related illnesses, mainly diarrhea. Um, it's just, that, that's, that's a terrible stat. That's, there's only 8 billion people in the world and a significant number of them at any given moment are getting water poisoning. So that's not good, but there's, there's bigger problems. For example, um, we have uh, a lot of industrial products in the water. Um, in America, we I like to say that the water, the tap water won't kill you right away. Meaning that it's not, it's not going to give you typhus or whatever, but it does have a lot of chemicals in it. And the laws are way out of date. So looking at a global level, first of all, most of the world, when you think about the third world, doesn't have sewage systems at all. I mean, nothing. Um, in India, you have, you know, 10, 20,000 people a year die just who are trying from sewage gases. They're literally trying to dig out the sewage from the pipes. It's just horrendous. So they, there's a problem. It's very similar. Think about uh, when Africa wasn't, didn't yet have phone systems and 
the challenge was, well, we're going to put landlines all over Africa. Well, it never happened. We went straight to cell phone. Uh, similar thing here. We don't, we lack the infrastructure that we built in America, built in Europe, um, but it doesn't exist in the rest of the world. So the solution is to, for the rest of the world to adopt a much more um, distributed model, very similar to the cell phone idea. And guess what? America also needs it because in the hundred years since we've built our infrastructure, it's fallen apart. And now we need to go ahead and adopt the same solution, which in fact we're doing with the, again, communications where Africa got way ahead in terms of cell phone. And today America is catching up with uh, landlines are almost gone. I mean, I challenge anyone to have a much of a landline anymore. And uh, you know, the plain old telephone system really runs on the internet anyway. So my daughter is going to argue with you on that one because she watches Stranger Things and all she wants is a phone that's plugged into the wall. My daughter's 13 years old and she's like, that's what I want, Dad. I'm, I'm so excited to show her this and show her Uncle Riggs told her that uh, that's obsolete now. Okay, so I'm going to play the devil's advocate here. Okay, Riggs, sure. I hear you. It's 6,000 people. There's problems in India. Riggs, I live in America. Regionally, it doesn't really affect me. Hit me with it. Go to the website, ewg.org, that's the Environmental Working Group, slash tap water, and put in your zip code. Find out what your water is, what's in your water, and you will be astonished. What you'll find is that your water is fully compliant with federal law. I mean, our municipal water district managers are not doing a bad job, but the standards are so far out of date that you know, your levels of arsenic, uh, uranium, you name it, are much higher than science has told us they need to be. So the law is way behind the science. And you should not drink tap water long term. Now, that's not a problem for you and me. We go ahead and we, we, build, we buy a system. It's done. But many, many people can't afford their own water system, right? Uh, plus, I'll tell you who is really vulnerable to tap water is our pet's. Our pets drink the tap water, and there's a lot of hormones in that tap water, and then they suffer. So they, it's not okay to have drugs, hormones, uh, toxins in the, in the tap water. Uh, it's not okay for, to have what's called glyphosate, which is the Roundup. Um, <clears throat> you know, I went ahead and invested in a shower head that, that filters out the glyphosate. Who does that? Nobody, right? So you take it for granted, you can just shower in the water. Well, your body absorbs X amount of gallons of water in the process of showering. It's like a quart or whatever it is. I forget what it is. But the point is, is your skin absorbs that stuff. And it's got, usually, this is tap water that you're using. So what I'm saying is, this affects us right at home. Secondly, if we look at um, a lot of, there's 26 million septic tanks in America. And their number is growing. Why? Because Americans are moving to the country and they're putting in septic tanks. Those things, a great percentage of those leak, leak into the groundwater. Uh, something like 100,000 viral diseases and a couple hundred thousand bacterial diseases in America come from the septic um, you know, infiltration into our water systems. So there's a number of things. Let's take California. California um, is so virtuous, right? But do you know that in California, the, uh, the oil producers in Kern County, which is the highest producing oil county in America, 
even ahead of Texas. They're allowed to dump their produced water into the ground untreated. And when, um, and we were personally involved with this a few years ago, we were trying to help with that. And we were making headway. Why? Because a, 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 an NGO had sued and won a, a judgment that said that the co-op is called Valley Water that, serve, that does all the water treatment, quote unquote, water treatment for the 55 oil producers in Kern County, that Valley Water had to clean up its act. And it was a disaster. They brought us in to do it, something about it. But then soon after that, Jerry Brown, the, the, the environmental governor, with a stroke of his pen, wavered the entire oil industry and said, no, you can keep on doing what you're doing. The result of this is that every single aquifer in California is polluted with hydrocarbons. That's just how it is, right? So we have, the more you dig, the more you'll find that there are really not good problems. And that's true of most industries, but water affects us deeply. We are made up of water and it's essential that we do something about it. Fortunately, there's a solution. So Riggs, help me with this too. Okay, so for all of you who just were listening to that, number one, all of you go out and get a shower head that is going to uh, filter out. Okay, so we're going to put a link. We're, we're going to put a link in the bio today. We're going to do that. The other one is I'm going to Riggs. I'm going to have you send me the that that link as far as being able to check your zip code. We're going to put that also because we want to have these things to be able to do. The challenge that I have with you, man, you're telling me that I got to have some bottled water for my dog, dude. Like. I, I drink Carlsbad water, which I think is the greatest why it's gypsy water. I don't know what's in it, but it tastes real good, Riggs. And if you live in Carlsbad, California, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's the greatest water in the world. Am, am I safe? Am I safe with my Carl? Don't tell me my don't don't poo-poo on on my Carlsbad water. Where am I at, Riggs? Am I good? Hey, listen, I could put your zip code in right now while we're talking. I could tell you what's in it. But, but I, don't, I don't want to depress you too much. See, here's the story. No, don't give your dog bottled water. Bottled water sucks. What, what we did in our home was very simple. Um, we put in the full dress thing in our, under our sink, which is reverse osmosis, carbon filters, remineralizer, the whole trip. This is ultra pure water for drinking at our, sink, our kitchen sink. For the whole condo, we put in a 0.2 micron filtering system. It's pretty decent. It doesn't it takes out a bunch of stuff, and that your 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 dog can drink that. It's fine. Or 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 give your dog the under sink stuff that's ultra pure. Fine. And then we put in, as I said, those those shower heads for uh, getting taking out the Roundup, okay. which my doctor. I've got a very good holistic doctor. I said you got to get this. So I don't know. In 20 years, it'll make a difference, I guess. But um, that's the thing, I think, Kelly, is that people don't see an immediate problem. That doesn't kill me today. Yeah. So I got much bigger problems. I got the cost of gasoline. I got da 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 Yeah. You know, um, so people don't worry about it so much. But it's relatively simple to do if you have the money. If you don't have the money, that's, that's where the problem comes in. And have you noticed that uh, a lot of the water disasters have occurred in low-income areas? Yes. Flint, Jackson, Compton. Why? It's because the water that gets to these communities goes through hops. It goes through resellers. It goes origin, later, 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 later. It gets more expensive and it gets lower quality. And so it's 
weird, but the lower income uh, neighborhoods actually have the biggest problems and they'll be they're least served. And I think in today's America, that is a scandal. So Riggs, what about this though, man, is, okay, you're a genius. You're an incredible, incredible human being, phenomenal heart. You've made tremendous uh, difference in this world and you're continuing to. But I can guarantee you growing up, you drank out the hose. What about the people out there that are like, well, if drinking out the hose produces rigs, I'm going to drink out my hose now. <laughs> there were far fewer pollutants back then. We, oh. did, we have not discovered Roundup, for example. Right? Okay. Roundup is a terrible, you know, that the farmers, um, one of our investors came out of uh, uh, Wisconsin, and he's a doctor in that area. And he says, Riggs, the people, the farmers that come in, with um you know uh brain cancer because they're exposed in industrial levels of roundup right and this is this is not okay um so we we are it's just the number of 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 pollutants of toxins has exploded in the last 50 years and um let's just say that we have an endemic problem with water that is primarily related to the underfunding of what we consider should be handling the problem, which is the central monopoly. These people we've delegated it to. And there's a classic story of what happened in Compton a few years ago. Compton water started running brown. And the people in Compton said, what's up? And the Compton water district said, well, first of all, it's safe. It's just magnesium. You can drink it, which I don't think they appreciated that. Uh, they wanted clear water, uh, which they had the right to. Uh, but more importantly, the, the district said, listen, for the last 15 years, we've been asking for money and your city council has not appropriated it. Therefore, you got what you got. And that was the truth of it. In other words, the city council was uh, not allocating the money. Compton, that, that water district, the Compton Water District, immediately got absorbed into the Metro Water District in LA and the problem quote unquote, went away. But what I'm saying is that the cities are kind of on their own. I'll give you another anecdote. Recently in Jackson, Mississippi, the water ran brown again. Why? Because there was a sewage overflow and uh, from, from the rains and the system couldn't cope and boom. I went to a friend of mine who is in the, uh, Mississippi, the Mississippi Assembly, in the House of Representatives of Mississippi. And which is based in Jackson, Mississippi. And I said, I'm not gonna say his name, dude, we can help. And he said, oh, that's not a state problem. That's the city's problem. And literally he was in Jackson, the city that was having the problem, but it was a city problem, not a state problem, right? So what you have is the, you have the cities at the very bottom of the pecking order having to handle this vital health thing and nobody else much cares. The federal government has gone from allocating, I don't know, $16 billion a year or more to like four. And it used to be grants, now it's loans. So the federal government's not helping. The state doesn't want to know. And the cities, how much can they charge, right? They, they got a lot of other things to worry about, like potholes and so forth. And so you have a problem that's not going to go away. And this is why Lux Research in 2016 said, you got a backlog and it's going to be over $100 billion a year by 2025. So that's why we say $75 billion today. And that is not being addressed. So what's the solution? 
Now, get too, if you have too much of a load, you have two solutions. You either increase your ability to carry the load or you reduce the load. That's your two options, right? So help us with this because I think a lot of times when people hear it, they, again, they hear a global problem or a huge challenge. And there are some people that, and, and justifiably rigs, there's a lot of people out there that just almost kind of tap out of these things. They're like, oh, it's such a big challenge. And if I'm going to wait on the government, and I can tell you this, if I'm going to wait on the government to do something, I'm going to be waiting a long time. Right. And so if I'm going to wait for legislation or I'm going to wait for that, yes, I can vote and I could do those things and I want to do it. But how can we make that difference now? What can a person that's listening right now, not only I mean, number one, you need to change a shower head. Number two, rig said it. You don't have to get bottled water for your dog. I ain't giving my dog Carl's bad water. But maybe you could do the filtration part of it. If you don't have it, we're going to give you some solutions because there's a lot of families out there that maybe can't afford. I remember growing up, we couldn't, I mean, that, that filter system would have costed more than our single wide mobile home. Um, but what can people do now? And I love this concept because with, with Ivan, when I met Ivan and he told me the thought of philanthro investing, it blew my brains because most of the time people see it as buckets. I'm going to invest, get a return. I'm going to do philanthropy. Maybe I get a tax write-off, but I feel really, really good, right? And he took the two of them and said, why don't we do philanthro investing? Invest in things that, are, that have a philanthropic feel but also you get a return. What can people do to make a difference? Okay, putting aside the stuff we can do in the home, which we'll give you the links and that'll be good. Um, here's the solution. 89% of all water usage is by industry and agriculture in America, roughly 50% of each, which means that individuals only, uh, residential users only draw 11% of the water and generate only 11% of the sewage. And yet we are the people who are being told, take shorter showers, you know, uh, you got to watch out and being charged the big water rates for, for, for sprinkling the lawn and so forth. When in fact, it's the people growing avocados and almonds in the Imperial Valley who are using up all the water, right? So um, the solution then is very simple. And businesses love it. Let businesses do their own water treatment. Let them take care of themselves. Take the load off of the city, and now the city only has 11% of the burden, mm. and it can easily handle that. Do you know that in Ireland, people don't pay for their water? It's free. I don't know if you know this, but the water rates in America grow at a rate far exceeding inflation. Why? Because it's not regulated. So water and sewage rates are rising fast. They're hitting the pocketbook. In some cases, way above where they should be. Like 14% of people's take-home pay. I mean, come on, for water? That's ridiculous. So you, it is possible, I believe. See, I'm a, uh, social justice says that water is free and we should all have, water is a human right. Fine. But it's not going to be a human right if you've got corporate users glomming onto all those resources and using them. Well, these people can simply start doing their own. Now, why would they do that? Well, it turns out that by doing it themselves, they can control their costs and they can recycle that water, get more than one turn out of it, which is economically good for them. And guess what? This country needs to start recycling. We don't do it. You know, Israel recycles 90% of their water. 
The second in the world is Spain with 20%, US 1%. Mm -hmm. Our systems are completely wasteful. Now, the minute you start letting people treat their own water, of course they will use it because there's a financial incentive in it. And so it makes financial sense for these businesses to start doing their own water treatment. And it's happening right now. So we did two major things to enable this trend because this became obvious back in 2016, I got religion. I was like, oh my gosh, this is, I, I read this Lux research, um, research paper in um, 2016 that was talking about decentralized water. And I said, that's it. Well, nobody believed me, nobody listened to me. But by 2018, I had found a technology for these compact drop in place water treatment systems that fit businesses. Perfect for that new distributed era that we were moving into. And it's called modular water systems and we call them water systems in a box, they're great. But still things were not moving that fast. It was good, but you know, by end of 2019, we were looking at each other going, oh, this is nothing much, this is still growing at this organic rate. Organic rates of growth in water are like 10, 15% a year. For a tech guy, that's kill me now, right? <laughs> I expect to be to go 10x at least. So what do you do? Well, then COVID hit, and then we really had to focus on the problem because they became life or death. Every single problem that we had prior to COVID became an acute problem during COVID, and we had to solve it. Uh, look at what happened to Airbnb. They got, went into high, hyperdrive, and they fixed their problems. We did the same thing. And we figured out the, that, that the reason why the slow uptake of these systems is because it's the money stupid. And so we decided to make these systems essentially free. People would just pay for usage, right? Water as a service. And so, because guess what? They're used to that already. The, these businesses are paying on the meter. They, didn't, they don't pay for their water systems. Now they bring one in house. They, if you're a brewery, are you, are you capitalized for a million dollar water system? No, it's not in your business plan. You get water from the city and you dump it, you give it to the, give it to the city, it's all good. But then when the city says we can't take it anymore, now you have to put in a system, where's that million dollars? We say, no, 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 sir, ma'am, sign here, 15 year service contract, pay by the gallon, and we'll handle everything. We'll get the water expertise, just keep paying on the meter, like you're accustomed to. And it's like, okay, that's simple. And so water as a service, which we call water on demand, became our thing. So now we have this company that is helping businesses and we don't go down to the single family home because that's a very commoditized, it's a super mass market space, but um, housing subdivisions, you know, um, definitely. Uh, and agriculture users, we help them achieve water independence so that they can treat their water, reuse it, whatever, and they do great. It unburdens the central municipality, and now the municipality can focus on the people. And now you're achieving a measure of social justice. So Riggs, like, why wouldn't someone, I mean, I'm listening to this, and, and my mind is going, well, I mean, that's a simple thing. Like you see a challenge, right? You saw the challenge. And most of the time people are like, I got this solution, but there's like 17. I mean, this is really like, 
I mean, I, I wish my son was here. My son's 11 years old. And you know what he would do? He would do the same thing. If, if, if All of you listening out there, you know Maddox, my son. And Maddox, we went, to, we went to buy a truck. We looked at a bunch of different ones. And he got in a truck that um, it, it, was a, it was a Titan, and we're a big uh, Tennessee Titans fan. You see the Oilers helmet behind me. Big Titans fan. You're not a sports fan at all, Riggs, so you won't get this one. But we drive this truck. We walk in and sit down with the general manager. He's a, a good friend, and, and he was telling me all the stuff. And I said, well, son, do you want to go and look at the truck again? My son at seven years old looks at me and is like, I already saw it, Dad. Why don't you just buy it? And it's it's just his mind, right? And the the general manager also threw him his own key, so I was done at that time. But, I, but I'm saying, like, if my son was in the room right now, and every one of you listening is like, "Wow, okay, Riggs saw a challenge." He then created a solution, but the solution had some challenges because you know most companies are not going to be capitalized for a million dollar water system. But here we can deliver it. Okay, why wouldn't someone do this? Well, the first thing is that you had to learn over time that see most of the water industry is servicing the monopoly, right? The big uh, guys, Veolia, American Water Works, Evoqua, all these guys—they're servicing the cities, which are funded by municipal bonds, and and it's a great racket. But it's a an underfunded racket, and it's limited. Not a lot of people are are doing this. Some there are pioneers. There are pioneers who are doing this new thing with decentralization and self sufficiency, and even the water as a service gig. People are doing it. What's special about us is we're the only people who are enabling regular investors to do it, and that's why I compare it to oil and gas because. In 1981, Apache Corporation invented something called the Master Limited Partnership, which is a bundle of energy properties that you can invest in, and regular people can. It's it's on the stock market. Today, there's something like 60 of these MLPs. The market is $300 billion in size, and they complement big oil, and it's a way to invest in productive water systems and get a royalty. So we said, well, well, let's just do the exact, exact same model. Let's let people invest in a bucket of water properties and get a residual. And that's what we put together. So that's what water and demand is today. Um, and it's unique because for the first time, ordinary people, now temporarily it's accredited, but soon we will have unaccredited as well. But in general, uh, regular investors can invest in this water as a service concept. And it's powerful. Riggs, how long until the unaccredited investor um, is able to, to be in it? It'll be this quarter. We expect to, now the, the unaccredited investor is not gonna get royalties because it's very hard to pay out royalties on $500. Yeah. It's super hard. Of but they'll get stock in the water on demand spinoff. So they will benefit from the health of the water on demand spinoff. The accredited investors, for a short time, we're allowing them to buy into this. And as I told you before the show, it's super sweet right now because they're founders. Yeah. So it does, you know. I, a lot of us, uh, our spouses are not happy with our management of our portfolio currently. It's just not a happy time. And this this helps. Investing in water on demand helps. 
let me put it that way, because it's so rich. Uh, you know, any founder's position in anything is highly leveraged and is the way to go. So if you want to make your spouse happy, then you might want to check out what on demand. I, I, Rick said that. I didn't say that. If you want to make your spouse happy, write her a note every day and tell her how much you love her. That's what you need to do. Uh, but this is this will be some added. Right, anyway, come on. It's, yes. But, but but still, she knows about her four hundred one k every single day. So so do me a favor, Riggs. I need a fa I need a favor here. Okay. Yes, sir. Can you speak to Uncle Lou? My Uncle Lou, I love him. I live with him. He he helped me to be able to start my career. If it wasn't for him, I wouldn't even be here. Uh, I moved out to San Diego and, uh, I got a chance at the time to just live with him and live in his house. Now he had a rule and that rule was that you turn on the shower, mm -hmm. jump in, soap yourself up, turn off the shower, do the rest of your soaping, cleaning with the shower off, turn the shower back on. Once you're done with all the washing, rinse yourself off, turn it off really quick. Another rule he had in his house was if it's not brown, don't flush it down. If and, it's yellow, let it mellow. Yeah. Yes, and so help me with this, Riggs, and coming from Uncle Riggs to Uncle Lou, only 11% of the water is coming from residential. So a brother could have taken a shower and, and flushed some stuff down then, yes? Well, you know, look, first of all, you guys do. I was living with my wife. And Riggs, family. help me out here. I don't know if you're helping me here. I think you're coming, going down. A, I don't I think you're going down a road where you're going to help Uncle Lou uh, to keep this rule in place. You know that I spent one of the um, un untold stories of this podcast is that I spent years at sea. And you're talking about a seaman's shower, basically. Right. Is what it is. But here's the story. Look, you live in a desert and you. Uh, it seems only right to behave like you're living in a desert. But the, what, what, I'm, what I'm saying is, let's not stop conservation efforts. In the, there's been a lot of um, uh, progress. The Department of Water and Power in LA has made progress, and it's a good thing. More importantly, they're allowing things like rain collection barrels, things like that, that used to be illegal, right? So all these things are starting to be done. Gray water systems, these things are all good, nothing wrong with them. But we can't forget to keep the pressure on the industrial and agricultural users to do right by us. And they, they are almost 90% of the demand and they need to start doing their thing. We are in the middle of a huge drought, not just in the West, but also in the center of the country, the Ogallala Aquifer. It's, it's, they're saying it's a 1200 year drought. And that's, that happens. I'm not gonna, climate change or no climate change, droughts happen. But we're not ready. Why? Because we are profligate in our water use. So we need to think as, um, uh, you know, uh, the wonderful book, Dune, you know, where they literally, they're on a desert um, planet and they, they would reuse the water from their bodies in, in this little sippy tube. That um, is an extreme version of that. And I think we should be thinking that way if only because it proves a proper value on water. But what I'm saying is let's focus the proper target. If we want to really make change happen, then we've got to focus on the industrials and agriculturals and get them to start managing water better. Riggs, 
you still didn't say Uncle Lou, man. You dodged it, dude. Hey, are you running for president right now? Because that was like I was in I was in a debate and I was uh, who was I? Christopher Wallace. And I just asked you a question and you danced around Uncle Lou at the like you were you were you were on the hot seat. You were getting your uh, doing a jig. So come on, man. Come on, come on man. man. Help help a brother out, man. I lived through this. And I, these short ass showers, actually, Uncle Lou, I love you, but I would wait until you left and then I'd take a long, warm shower. <laughs> well, you have to think about the spiritual nature of a shower, you know, and, and it, it, there is something about a great hot shower. You've been super tense. Well, truthfully, a bath is even better, but, you know, who takes a bath anymore? Can you, um, but, but Riggs, can you actually say his name, Uncle Lou? Like, Tell him. Talk to Uncle Lou right. Talk to Uncle Lou right now. Well, you know what? I'll tell you something. Take a bath. You know, a bath is a great economical way to bathe. You know, a bath uses a lot less water than most people's showers, right? So take a bath. You'll have a great time. You'll sit there, a little rubber ducky. You'll be. You'll have a great time. Why not just do that? So uh, help us help us to understand in a in a in a day to day right. So we talked about the the global part. You got to the regional part. We talked about the local part. Talk to us about on the day to day some of the 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 mishaps or the misunderstandings that people have about their water, like in their day to day routine. Well, for example, in um, so many people are moving away from the mega cities to secondary cities. And, um, you know, Florida is benefiting from it. It's a wonderful thing, but it's also um, overloading a lot of the rural water districts, which are not accustomed to that level of, of load. And frankly, people are still installing uh, these septic tanks, which we need to just put an end to it. Septic tanks are a big, big part of the problem. They, they mess up all kinds of things. So number one, we need to move off the septic tank regime, and, um, and that can be done individually. It can be done, you know, through pressure on uh, the political level. The second thing is, is that um, there can be off-grid housing developments, um, and housing developers are waking up to, hey, wait a minute, I can buy really, really cheap land that's not, you know, sewage connected, and I can go ahead and develop on it and put in one of these uh, off-grid water systems. So these are good, these are good uh, bright ideas that we can have. Um, the, what you can do at the individual level, again, make sure that your own water um, supply is good. Uh, and then um, I think that the people need to be aware that, that the world is moving towards decentralization. Now, what do you, like, like, let, me, let me give you an example that's a totally different space. We know that in California, we're never going to get the bullet train, right? It's not going to happen. We got that one little segment in, in the Central Valley, and that's it. What we are going to get is the Google self-driving car. Why? Because we already have the freeways, right? So, boom. Very similar here in water, we're not going to get the giant trillion-dollar infrastructure fix. We're going to get self-help and water independence, distributed water treatment. And so it's important to think that way. And just as with you have you and I have nothing to do with the Google self-driving car, but it's good to know that that's the trend. So at a certain level, you know, you're being an informed citizen and at some point you're going to have a chance to say something about it, to have, you know, to perhaps invest in technology 
that is going to make a difference. Um, you know, right now is the very bad time to be invested in high tech. Who knows if that's going to continue? Um, but maybe it's time to think about more legacy stuff. I'm invested in, in my personal portfolio in legacy stuff. Why? Because I think it's time for these old school um, industries to modernize and to become advanced. And that's what's happening in water. So take us into that Star Wars realm, Briggs. If you would have told me when I was a kid, um, you know, there's going to be a self-driving car. I would have been like, yeah, I mean, that sounds cool. I see the Jetsons, right? And now, yeah. now it's a reality, right? And I remember when in, I think it was 2000, this was 2004, mm-hmm. 2005. I remember buying a, um, it was a 2003 car. So about two years old. But it was the S55 Mercedes, the AMG right. one, and it had the um, it had the uh, the seats that blew up on the side as you go around the corner to hold you in the seat because that's absolutely necessary in life. Right. It also right. had one. It had one of the first stop and go cruise controls, and I was like, blow my mind. And now, if you buy a <laughs> Honda Civic, you've got that on the car. Tell us about something that's coming with water that is so far out there because that's what your your job is in the tech side of it and what you do. You've got to forecast and see the future. What is going to be the thing that will freak people out that they hear today that is going to be natural and normal for their kids and our kids with water? You are going to eventually go off grid yourself at the single family home level. It's going to happen yet, meaning that um, we're going to continue to see a, a degradation in the municipal services, the way it's going. And I don't see it being fixed anytime soon. And there's very good systems. We don't sell them, but uh, you can get one right now from Fuji Water, and it'll be more of these, which uh, treat your outgoing water, your black water, as they call it. You can recycle it, you know, um, to sprinkle your lawn, etc. And then you can treat the water um, and the the black stuff goes into a sludge tank that gets pumped out once a year. And that's going to become a routine. And that is not a bad thing. It's happening in business right now. Um, and businesses are taking advantage of it. How? Well, they can, as I said, locate in an area that's not served and get a bargain on land and still have that sewage service because technology has advanced that far. So that is that is definitely where it's going. So Riggs, I mean, you're, you're the, you're the authority on this. You're going to be like, no, I'm not the authority. I'm just one, but you are, you're the authority on this and you're a humble dude, which, you know, if I, if, if I was doing what you're doing, I'd wear a cape and a speedo and just have a fan in front of me and blow the cape all the time. Cause I'd be the man. No, that Jason, that Jason, uh, already has the, Aquaman <laughs> thing. <It's done>. <laughs> but in your daily routine, what do you do that you need to correct when it comes to water? Because, I mean, I, I know some of the greatest financial minds in the world, and then I'll talk with them and they'll be like, yeah, but I do this one thing, and this is the thing that I need to correct. Being the authority, the world authority, on, uh, as far as on a water and water conservation and, and moving that way and, and changing the game, where mm-hmm. do you mess up? Or are you perfect, Riggs, and for, dropped straight from heaven? 
I'll tell you the biggest problem that I have is that we are one company. And no matter how successful we're going to be, we're still going to be one company. And I believe that to change water, there must be a movement. And scaling that up to the level of movement, um, I mean, I believe we're going to be a great company, we're going to be huge, et cetera, but we're not, I don't see us being a movement. I don't, it's not yet real to me. Maybe, well, I actually, you know, I've started to think, um, uh, let me just um, spitball a little bit here. Because at the lowest level of our company, we make water machines, systems that purify the water, et cetera. I think that's what we do in Dallas and in Virginia. That's our job. Next level up now is this fintech solution, which uh, finances, with the help of our investors, these water systems so people don't pay up front. What I'm thinking is that the fintech thing is the scalable part, not the building the water machines. If we can spread the fintech thing to go, okay, uh, you, sir, in Dubai, you've got a financial um, you know, organization we'll go ahead and, and give you the water on demand franchise for, for the uh, Middle East. And you'll go ahead and you'll finance the water systems in the Middle East. And you, ma'am or sir, in Singapore, will do the same thing for the Malayan Peninsula, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So what I'm saying is let's take this financial, um, this, this financial system that we've built and export that. And I think that is perhaps the solution. Now, it's still just a gleam in the eye for me. I'm far from it. Why? Because I'm in the trenches building this thing. But I think that's probably scalable. And, um, and there's also in part of that, there is a blockchain element, which these days is a forbidden term. We don't say the term blockchain if we're a public company because the SEC doesn't like it. But at some point, there is a water coin in the picture. That's down the road also, but that's also part of creating this sort of um, umbrella activity that enables water as a service worldwide and democratizes it. And that's way far away. I wish I could tell you I'm working on it now. I'm not. I'm putting the, I'm, I'm basically doing this because you got to make the home thing work well. And then, you know, worry about scaling it. But as long as we haven't scaled it, we will not have solved this problem. I mean, I'm sorry. I, I like to think I'm omnipotent, but I'm only one company. So when you're talking about the scaling part, how have you been able to, and this is always interesting to me because being able to talk to you from the time that we turn on the video um, and letting people know behind the scenes, like this is who Riggs is, like the conversation that we're having, this is who Riggs is even when the camera's not recording. And there's very few people. There's, there's people who put on the face. They put on the face for the company or they put on the face for the image or they do. You didn't put on any face. This is exactly like your tone is exactly the same. And I want to compliment you on that. Riggs, how do you scale and still keep the heart? Because this is where most people lose it, right? So they say they, they have this idea. They bring in money, right? And so they scale with money or they bring in, uh, you know, VC. And when they, when it happens, then all the focus becomes on the return of the, the, the money as opposed to the mission that they started on. Is there the Holy grail of being able to keep both? Okay. Yes. And here's how, 
I believe that the, the Red Hot Chili Peppers said it best, give it away, give it away, give it away. In other words, it's going to work if I'm, I make Origin Clear a successful company. And we announced yesterday that we are investigating um, a uh, working with a blank check company. In other words, you know, these uh, special purpose acquisition corporations, SPACs, have money, money searching for a business. And we may actually do one of those deals, which would be wonderful because we'd have much more capital than we have today. Great. So my plan is to make uh, ourselves and our investors really, really, really filthy rich because they deserve to be. They've been so incredibly loyal. But moving beyond this scaling idea that I have of going planetary and, and, and exporting what are one on demand and so forth. Why should I try and keep a big piece of it? Why not just um, export it and let people use it and, uh, and sort of export the knowledge? Take a sliver of a lemon peel, maybe just because you want to keep the IP or something like that. But keep it really, really approachable and easy and not try to become the, the, the water god of the universe. I think that's probably the smart thing to do. And how does this work out, too? Because uh, I think a lot of times, uh, you know, I've asked this question of a lot of hard charging, whether it be founder CEOs. Um, how does this work out as far as family-wise and family dynamic? Because, you know, there's a lot of hard charging, um, you know, purpose-driven entrepreneurs, founders, CEOs, that they are so locked into the mission that their family goes by the wayside. And when you spoke about your wife and you told me about her, like you lit up, this was before we started recording. So I wish I would have recorded it because I would have sent it to your wife and been like, your husband really loves you. But, but you, t you talked about it. Like how does, how does a person that flies on the levels that you do as far as you and being in the tech business, then moving into this part, but you're also thinking like you just said a 10 times multiple doesn't do it for you. It doesn't make you want to get out of bed. And so, you know, when you're scaling and you're looking at those kind of things, how, how, and what do you do to be able to keep your family in line also? So you don't lose that. Well, first of all, my wife has her own mission. She is, uh, I call her the uh, child whisperer. She's amazing with kids. She creates future leaders in her uh, educational program. It's more like a group tutoring activity that she does. It's super cool. Um, and so she has her own mission. And I have been privileged since we got together after, the, after my late, the mom, the mom of my son passed away in 2012. I got together with Sigrid and um, she was able to scale up her educational activity. And so we worked together uh, in, in doing that. Obviously, I don't have much time to do it. I kind of like, kind of help from the side, but we are, we, we do work together on this. And it's, it's part of what's super cool is that um, she, has very, she has nothing to do with my business. Although I have to tell you that she hears me talking on the phone and she'll say, that guy, you got to get rid of that guy. Like, what are you talking about? Like, the way, the way you're stressed talking to or about that guy, you got to get rid of him. And she's invariably right. So, you know, she is involved in my business to the extent that she understands people very well. And she will um, give me very good advice that I sometimes follow. And by the same token, we're involved together in this educational enterprise of hers, which she is so dedicated to. And 
in the process, for example, I get to go, uh, we, we do these um, school trips to the slopes and we get to ski and I get to teach all these kids how to go in the trees and get in real trouble and freak out the parents and I'm a happy camper. So I, I think I know what the answer is going to be, but what is it that brings you the joy? Like, what is it that brings you the belly laugh that doesn't? Because I, I, I asked this of a, a woman the other day. I said, you know, what brings you joy? What, what do you do that doesn't have any ROI? And she was like, uh, I like to read a long book. I like to lay in a hot bath. And I was like, that's not what you said when you were five years old. You know what I'm saying? Like, when you're five years old, you're thinking, like, I want to do this thing. What is that thing that just brings you joy, that brings you no return in your business or no uh, scalability, but it just brings you joy inside your heart? Well, I have a guilty secret, and that is that I uh, basically ruined my career um, back when I turned 40. Um, I was, at the time, in the film industry. And I was in high demand because I'm a workaholic and film industry loves workaholics. And I was doing well. And then I happened to drive across country through Colorado. And I realized that I had never ski bumped in my life and I needed to do it immediately. And so I literally just stopped with the film thing and I went skiing and I ski bumped. It was the best time I ever had. And, um, People would look at me because I was a chef at top of top of Keystone. There's a four-star restaurant at top of Keystone, and I'd be on the gondola going up in my chef's uniform. And these people, when they found out that I'd literally given up film to do this, they were like, "No, don't destroy your life, man! You got to go back. You got to do it." And I'm like, "No, I'm actually having a great time. I believe in um, just really blowing out." I'm a big, big skier, sailor. I've sailed professionally, so I'm, a, I'm actually a licensed merchant mariner. Um, been around the world. And to me, these are things that are just very special. They're very special. They, they are a whole different class of thing. Um, you know, Elon Musk wants to take people to Mars. I just want to go to, I just want to sail to Hawaii. You know, I think that's a wonderful thing. So. To me, those are the great things is, is um, be, do um, superlative things uh, physically in wonderful physical environments. Again, okay, it's water, snow, ocean, so it's water. But that's really what, what gets me. Um, and that's, that's what I love. Um, I, I take these kids, and you know, there's no way that a kid, this is the fastest a kid can go is on skis fastest a human can go is on skis. Secondly, a kid is never as free as when he or she's on, ski, on skis. Why? Because the parents have no clue what they're doing. Like, did you have a nice time? Oh yeah, I had a great time. Yeah, they have no idea what that kid went through, the adventures, the craziness that happened. And that's a freedom for a kid. I think that kids don't have enough freedom. So I just, I feel so privileged when I take these kids and I show them how to master the slope, be safe, you know, have control, and then go in these terrifying drops or incredible tree runs safely and just come out of it just grinning from ear to ear. I think that's, there's nothing better. So Riggs, <clears throat> what I noticed too is that when I, when I see people like yourself, and I, I call you an icon, you're not going to call yourself an icon, but I am. When I see a person like you, it's, it's, 
it's almost a DNA thing, meaning that there's some DNA. I'm not saying that it was born in you because you had to work really hard. There's, there's circumstances that came in, all those things. But there seems to be a DNA that when you go at something, that thing is going to become successful, right? And you've proved it in the tech world. You're proving it with, with origin clear. Um, you're, you're proving it in the fact of you said, you know, you had the water systems, then you went into the water service and now it's starting to be scalable. You proved that in the, uh, in the movie industry, you proved that when you went and became a chef, right? Because people loved what you were doing. You're helping kids, all those things. Let us into the DNA. What made up rigs? Was it parents telling you things? Were you seeing things? And what were, I mean, give us some of those specifics because I think a lot of times people look at a rigs and it's almost like you're the outlier. Like I'm going to, we're grading on a curve. I'm going to throw out the best one. I'm going to throw out the rigs in my life because maybe that's not possible. But Mm -hmm. what I've seen over time is that you're a human being, right? And so help us with that DNA, help us with the makeup of what rigs is and, and how'd you get there? Well, I had I, I, I was very privileged to have uh, parents who uh, were very international. I was raised pretty much all over the place, um, and uh, my mom was an amazing person, artist, and uh, raised six boys, and did a great job at it. Um, and my dad was, um, if if you ever watched the movie, the TV series Mad Men, he was that he was he was that guy um, with all the flaws. A very interesting guy, and. Uh, both of them passed away, but they, they, I think, imprinted me, I think, with a certain um, ease in terms of not uh, – people sometimes don't feel empowered enough to do things. And they gave me the assumption like, hey, you, you can do it. You can absolutely do it. And I think that was very powerful. Um, you know, I had other influences. I had tremendous influence um, my early – career coming out of high school was in the nonprofit space. And I think that when you work in the nonprofit space, you uh, get a certain dedication to not making money, but making a difference. And that, that was huge too. So um, I think that um, I I was very lucky to have that, um, that influence on me. Absolutely. So when you talked about your pop, like, tell me, tell me a a time where you saw your dad doing something and maybe he didn't sit you down. I'm very big on this. Uh, just in my life is, is I have people all the time, like I need to sit my kid down and I need to tell them this. And I'm like, when's the last time that you thought of a lesson that you have in your life that someone sat down and told you it was mainly most of the time. It's when we experience it, when we see them doing something, we see them, we, we observe them when they don't know we're watching. What was something that your dad or your mom didn't know you were watching, but it just massively impacted you and you apply it today. It's very interesting that you say that because right away it made me think of the fact that my dad, he was a Procter and Gamble man. And as he was, we'd, we'd go, he, he was an itinerant CEO. We started in Toronto where I was born, went on to Puerto Rico, Venezuela, Paris, Brussels, back to Paris, et cetera. And um, he, he was, you know, sort of the corporate guy and he did it very well. Years later, uh, I was in business in the 80s in New York City, and he was there too. And he was named to a job running a headhunter organization, very prestigious one. It didn't work out. It didn't work out. 
because it required him to be the, the different guy. He was no longer the diplomat businessman, you know, just kind of meeting people and making accords and doing the very high level stuff. No, he had to get in there and make the headhunting work. And it, it, it was not great. And I realized then that you can get siloed as a person. You can turn into someone who's only good at one thing. And then you become like a dinosaur, you become obsolete. And um, it wasn't until m many years later, he once again was involved. He started working for the World Bank, um, privatizing economies in, in, in Africa. And that once again, he was back in his diplomat mode and that worked, he did very well. So, but it's not good that, that you sort of like, oops, I'm not suited at all for this. I thought I was, but I'm not. Um, so it's important, I think, to, to understand yourself and know that, you know what, the fiction I've built around myself, because people build stories about themselves, the story that I built about myself, it's not going to work unless I'm willing to reinvent that story. Um, and it, part of it is recognizing that, you know what, maybe um, being a diplomat doesn't work if you're not willing to be the dishwasher, you know, kind of thing. And, um, and, and being humbled by that. I, I, I'm, you kind of took me by surprise, but that's the first thing that came to mind. So what did, Riggs, what did you learn about your, uh, or what did you learn during the process and, and during that time of your wife passing away? Wow, that was really interesting because um, what it took her two years to pass away, and that, that uh, was a long, long and difficult time. Um, and the number one thing that I had to address afterwards was feeling guilty, right? Feeling that I hadn't done enough, that I could have saved her in some way, that I hadn't, whatever I hadn't done, um, and. I had to handle that, and I have to say that um, that's where a you know um, a deeply personal activity that I that I that I engage in, that I have engaged in for many years, which is the practice of Scientology, has helped me tremendously. But it's true of any practice that you uh, adopt, be it Buddhism, right? there's a whole range of these things. I had to become okay with that, and similarly, my son, he too initially was like kind of like he was sad but i said do you do you want any help he goes no no no, i'm fine three months later he goes i am ready for help i'm ready for the help um during the time that that avis was sick we did our best but again it was not enough it wasn't the best it, we were human beings who were um not saving her we weren't saving her and uh, then uh, that's where I had to really uh, find a process to, to remedy it. And, and um, today, you know, it was vital for me to then be able to move into my current marriage in a way that was not burdened by that experience. What, what did it teach you about money? Because, you know, this is, this is a, a thing that, you know, I, I just went through, and I'm sorry for your loss. We, we just went through people who know me. We just, uh, my pops just passed away December 19th last year. And then my mom about four and a half years before in uh, June 21st or June 19th, sorry, June 19th. He was December 19th. And what it, what it taught me for me, um, it shifted some paradigms as far as financially too. 
and it shifted some paradigms for me in business. Um, it shifted some paradigms for me in time. I mean, when I say like I'm listing them all off, but there was this paradigm shift of realizing like sitting with my dad on the, I went on, I think it was Monday night or Monday morning and I spent with him until I think it was Wednesday night. And then, um, he passed, uh, that Saturday morning or Sunday morning after I, after I had left and I could tell you this, all the money in the world, like the billions, the, the, or doing a business deal or selling for a multiple and things like that, that I've got a chance to be able to experience in my life. None of that stuff mattered. Right. So was there some paradigm shifts for you? And I want to talk about the, the financial part of it specifically, because I mean, I think that it happens sometimes and then people forget about it. They're, they're like, oh, there's this big shift. And then a couple of years go by and they're like, they find themselves back in the place that something else was important. So what did you learn financially? Like, let's stick in that part and then we'll go into the others. But what did you learn financially from your wife passing? What, or was there paradigm shifts or did you, you know, that, that way? That's interesting. Well, one thing that we were very... Um, I think lucky to do was that um, a year into her her cancer, we we went to France and we spent time together. Um, just we went to see, my dad was living in France, and so we went to see him. But more importantly, we just hung out in Paris, which I love, and we just roamed around. And then we went to London, and that was wonderful. And and um, and you know, my wife really, I mean. Her, her son, George, was her life, and she just got to just experience him. And I think that was the best. Um, that that uh, trip, I think, was the highlight of, um, of her last days. So with that, I think after that, it was um, just being aware that, um, you know, well, if you're a Scientologist, you know that, that death is not the end. They're, they're basically each body that we put on is like a suit and we are, we, we, we are, um, we exist forever. So, um, you know, we, we go from life to life and we hopefully learn something in the process. That's, that's the old Hindu concept, right? Mm -hmm. Hopefully you, you actually, you actually uh, progress in a, in a, in a spiritual way, but nonetheless, um, that did help. That did help that it was, she was going to, um, be reborn somewhere and the important thing was for her to be as as serene as possible and as 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 well off herself as she could be and that was the focus and you're right nothing else mattered what was wonderful about that time is my company's backers uh who are actually um the very wonderful man who's a mormon um was like hey take all the time you need that's fine. And, and I got tremendous support at the time from, this is the same man who recruited me as a CEO in the first place. And literally two years, um, um, four years later, um, you know, Avis got sick and he, he made it happen for us. So um, some relationships really are transcendent. And my relationship with Jim is, is that way because um, you know, we don't talk a lot, but we, we know we're there for each other. So, uh, you know, there's a saying, um, 
that I read many years ago when I was a young man. I was 12, I think. And I read this, happened to open this book by Saint-Exupéry, uh, who wrote The Little Prince. And it's his book called Terre des Hommes, Land, Land of Men. And I opened it, boom, I never read the book. <laughs> Too dense, couldn't read it. But right there it said, Il n'est qu'un luxe véritable, et c'est celui des relations humaines. There's one, one true wealth, and it is human relations. And if there's one thing that I think matters is the, the relationships that we grow over time, that just mature and that turn into these, where you just know the person's there and you're there for them, and, and you're enriched. That's probably the most important thing, and that's what I learned during that time, and of course, my son and I went through that, and he's doing well today. What would you say to a person like that is that's going through it right now, that either they know it's imminent that their that their you know spouse or their father or their mother is going to pass, or they have just passed? Now, I don't believe that there's any advice you can give to a person, you know that that's going to change anything, but. What would you say to that person based off of your experience and you going through it and you kind of, I'm not saying that you're on the other side, like it, it's still, it, it, those things are always there, right? Um, we're able to deal with them. You seem to have dealt with them amazing, but what would you say to that person? Well, we tend to be self-judging people. That's what we do. We try to do our best, but there's something that, uh, you know, um, the philosopher Elron Hubbard uh, said which is at all times, you have always done your best. And what does that mean? That means you should not constantly harp on the things you might have done right or wrong. They're behind you. They, you are here now, and life is in you today, and you make your own tomorrow. And so the important thing with someone who's passing is, first of all, be with them as much as you can, of course. Be in the present with them. They really rely on you as their, as their compass tremendously. I remember when, when Avis was, she early on in her uh, cancer, she had a major operation to take out what was there. And she said, she came out of it, she said, you know, during the operation, I felt you were there with me. And that was such a huge acknowledgement. And we don't realize how much we are there for people. And so that's number one, is to recognize that. Number two is to be present. And number three is don't recriminate yourself. Don't be hard on yourself. You, you always did the best you could. And if it wasn't great, it was still the best you could do. It was, at the time, the best you could do. And that gives you a chance to recreate yourself in the present. Perhaps it's something better, but you're not tied to the past. Riggs, I would like to think that I'm a... Uh, pretty present person, uh, but I, I realized when when my pop passed that um, there was one thing that I wish I would have said, and um, I would always tell him because I have a, I have a ton of friends in my life, and those of you who are my friends that listen with Will and Dave and Dale and Andy and Alfred and um, all these guys are my buddies, JB and Nate and Rob and all these guys are friends since I was in fourth grade. And still mm -hmm. hang with them. And I would always, I refer to them all as my best friends. But I never said that to my dad. 
I never said mm. to my pop, like, you're my best friend, man. And I wow. look at it with every single person in my life. I mean, I talk to my dad every single morning. I never told him, like, you're my best friend. Now I get to tell him because I spend time with him at the beach now and I write to him and he writes back to me and, you know, I get to spend a lot of time. So you seem, yes. is, what is, what is, what is, if anything, the thing that maybe you didn't say or you didn't say enough to her that if you had the second, like if I had five seconds with my pop, I would say you're my best friend. What would you say, Davis? Okay. This is something I've learned with, with my spouse today is however she is and whatever she is and whatever she does, it's exactly okay. It's fine. I used to try and like, Avis, I wish we could do that. I, I, I would try and correct her and so forth. That's just not the way. Um, you, I think that accepting someone exactly as they are and you know what, if, if they, they burn the pancakes when they flip them over, they burn the pancakes when they flip them over. It's just how it is. Right. And, um, if they're willing to maybe hear a little bit about, you know, you could try the medium setting instead of the high setting, maybe, but that's very limited. I think that, that when it comes to somebody who's very, very close to you, um, we need to accept them exactly as they are and it's gotta be totally okay. Um, and not try to change them because then they relax around you. you they're, they're already, tr they're already criticizing themselves plenty. They're already, you know, and lots of people around them are criticizing them. You've got to be the one person. This is what I learned about myself who like, babe, you are exactly perfect as you are. And that this, this steak it's wonderful. <laughs> the steak is actually, you know, <laughs> cooked way beyond medium, but this steak is great. And I think this got to be that way. It's got to be that way that you are completely accept that person for who they are. And then magical things happen, I think. But Riggs, what about the person that is like, and I think that Simon Cowell killed it for us all in America. The reason why is because with the talk shows or the game shows, which you don't watch because you don't watch sports and you don't uh, pollute your life with this stuff, which is good. But I'm, I'm a bad person and sometimes I do. But what I found was when the talk show and the game show kind of, it became this like, I'm constructively criticizing you. I'm just being real and I'm going to bash you, but I'm going to tell you it's because I love you. I've never really responded to those kind of things. I had a pops who honestly encouraged me every, like every step of the way. How do you, how, how do you manage that when, when you're saying like, if the steak is burnt and you're like, no baby, it tastes amazing to the speak to the people out there that are like, well, he ain't telling the truth then. Well, it's very interesting. There's, there's uh, again, a, um, I come back to, to something that, that uh, Ron Hubbard uh, talked about, which is a cause-cause relationship. You can have a cause-effect relationship, meaning that I'm causing an effect on you and then you're causing effect on me. Or we both are at cause with each other. Hmm. And that is, that is the way to do it. Now, it does mean that he gives an example specifically in this essay that he writes about it. He says, your wife keeps scratching the fender when she pulls out of the driveway. 
It's not for you to say anything. Now, you might just move the pillar so she doesn't scratch it, right? You can do uh, uh, practical things to prevent it. But you don't go, God damn it, you scratched the car again. That's not the way. And we're trained to try and mold people and criticize and so forth. Um, I might, if my wife were doing that, for example, I might say, hey, what's going on? Tell, tell me, tell me what's happening. Um, because she'll know, I, honey, I scratched the car again. Well, tell me what's going on. What's, what's, ha- what, what's happening that you're scratching the car? Well, blah, 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 blah. Okay, well, thank you. I appreciate you telling me. And do you realize the power of that, of hearing somebody out, being willing to ask, what's going on? As opposed to, will you please not, would you please watch out the mirror when you pull out? That doesn't, you're already adding to their burden of self-criticism. So I think number one is this cause-cause relationship. We're both creating a relationship together. And so this is not a criticism zone, but it can be an inquiry zone, right? What's going on? Tell me about it. Like, let's say that she she wasted a bunch of money on something. I don't know, right? Um, So tell me about it. And she'll tell me, well, you know, and then she'll go, you know, kind of feel like an idiot. It's like, okay, well, I hear you. Okay. That to me is so powerful. Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't be more proactive with employees, but in fact, with my good employees, I can do the very same thing. Hmm. I talked to my VP marketing and he's, he's, let's say he's doing some design that I disagree with. What's going on that you keep doing this design? Tell me, tell me about it. I'd like to know. That's more constructive, I think, than saying, you know what, I really I have a problem with this. Um, there's more leeway in, in, in business, I think, because people expect to be told how it is and fix it. But in personal relationships and very close friendships and business, business relationships that are of a very partnerial relate, uh, nature, criticism it does not work great. It, you get your opportunities, you get your chances to, um, I, I, have a, I have one of my very close collaborators who, who talks his texts. He's constantly talking his texts and he, and he hits send. I'm like, dude, and finally, after months, I said, you might want to look at your text before you hit send. Because <laughs> I didn't want to waste my, the relationship on criticizing. I was just willing to try and figure out what the heck he just said right? With his Long Island accent. And he said, yeah. So the time does come. Well, I think it's, I think it's incredible. And, uh, there's a guy, one of, one of my friends was talking about a, a book called the light side of the dark chasers and, mm. or the dark side of the light chaser, sorry, dark side of the light chasers. I was talking with Sean Finnegan. I don't know if you know who he is, but you probably know Sean at some point where or you'll meet him because Ivan, but, he was talking to me about this book and it was interesting because it was a friend of mine who wrote it named uh, uh, Debbie, Debbie Ford. And Uh she talked about one thing in the book that really massively impacted me. She said, uh, you know, a hologram, I didn't know this, that a hologram, if you break a piece of a hologram off, it actually has the full image on the hologram. 
And I didn't, I didn't know this. And she said, it's just like DNA or just like a cell in your body. That DNA has a snapshot of your entire person in that one little cell. And that the basically what it what she was likening it to is the way you do one thing is the way you do everything and it's amazing to hear and i want everyone who listened to the podcast i want you to go back to the beginning and i want you to listen and i want you to listen for the cues the cues and the clues that uh that rigs dropped and then i want you to listen to the end and then i want you to listen to it one more time so listen to it three times one just listen to it all the way through second time you're hearing my voice now start from the beginning and then realize what he said at the end and then I want you to listen to the end, and then I want you to listen to the beginning. Because it's so consistent, Riggs. And when you look at what you're doing, your mission that you're on, the things that you're doing, the way that you treat your company, the way that you grow, the DNA that you have as far as being successful in your business, like, it's no wonder. Like, you hear your character, and there's very few people, I wanna, I wanna compliment you on that, because there's very few people that their character is in line with the, all the things that they do. A lot of times they adjust their character <laughs> based off the results that they want, or the, the, the ROI, or the, the multiple that they wanna be able to get, but you haven't done it. And I've just been listening, I, I, I'm on the listening end, which is amazing. But I want to congratulate you on that, man. I, I want to tell you that uh, that's a, an incredible trait. Uh, it's not very common. And, um, you know, I, I just, I really, really, really want to celebrate it. And I want to, I want you to understand that specifically. Um, well, I, bef- I want yeah. to tell you that um, I celebrate you because I don't, I don't get drawn out like this. Uh, most podcasts, we go through the, what we did in the first half of the podcast. But, um, you know, I like, yeah, this is why I listen to Joe Rogan a lot, because he draws his people out a lot. And it's it's a long form podcast, just like this one. And you get a chance to really hear the real person. And I think that is something that I really, um, I love about what you're doing here, because you kind of went layer, 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 layer. Okay, no, 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 I want the next layer. And I think that was that was so powerful. So I really appreciate that. Well, I, I, I really appreciate you, man. I mean, it's because I, I just recently, and I haven't told anyone this, so, but you told me some stuff that you don't tell people. So I recently had, a, and I didn't know it was a service, but there was a service that reached out that um, said, hey, we want to have this guy on your podcast. And I thought it was his, like someone who worked with him. Seemed mm-hmm. to have a great story, all the stuff. He comes on the podcast and we're just about to record. And he looks up at me, he's like, what show is this again? And I was like, ah, and, and I was, and it wasn't ego. I want to tell you, Riggs, it wasn't oh ego. God. Okay. Oh my God. Well, maybe a little bit ego. And then, uh, we, we, I kind of let that one slide. And then he looked at me, he's like, he's looking at the screen. He's like, what's, what's your name again? And, Jesus. and I told him, I said, respectfully, this show is not for you. And he was like, well, what do you mean? Like, I'm doing this in this space and I'm doing these great things and doing all this stuff. And I said, sir, I I want you to realize that we only chronicle great people. Like, we're wanting to know who you are as opposed to what you do. And And this space is not really for you because the audience is here to understand and know who the person is. And Riggs, like, Maybe you didn't understand that part, but you passed with flying colors a test that you had no idea that you were inside of. And and when you again, I, I invite every listener out there 
who, by the way, Riggs, every listener out there that's been rolling with us has helped us to be in the top 1% of all podcasts globally. And with no promotion, we have not paid for any ads. We have not done any of those. This is all simply organic because people want to listen. But they want to listen and hear from people like yourself that are flying in the spaces where you are but are willing to be vulnerable in the spaces too because honestly, like, we could hear a presentation anytime. But to hear yeah. who you are, man, and to see how you actually operate, the DNA of who you are, I mean, it's, 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 it's far more impressing than what you do. So, No, it's, it's far more meaningful. I mean, when you started getting into the things that I really love, um, they had nothing to do with work, right? That's the truth. Well, I want, I want to compliment you, man. We started the podcast because of iconic people like yourself, and I wanted to take, and when I first started off, everyone was like, and I loved what you said about your pop. Because what you said about your pop, like, and this is what I heard, but I want to review. So you were talking about him being a diplomat, and then he had to go into doing some grunt work and things like that. And you were like, well, he wasn't really good at that, so it didn't, didn't work out. And right. you, you were talking about understanding and being able to connect with people on an on a executive level, on a mid-management, and on a laboring level. And this is something that is so important because when we started the podcast, everyone was like, what's your niche? And I said, people. And, and everyone was like, that's far too large. You've got to niche down. And then when you're niche down, you got to niche down even further. And you got to get into this place. And I said, I love people. And I want to talk to people, some of the greatest people in the world. And at first they were like, okay, so how are you going to monetize it? And what I said was, it's going to be impossible not to when you connect with the right people. But they didn't understand. Now they're starting to understand. And there's a lot of people that still don't. And they're like, I got to have the niche of the niche of the niche of the niche of the niche. And what I would say is, and what I heard you say is no matter who you are, if you can't connect with people, (laughs) you're going to have a real rough time. That, but also you've got to you've got to be able to yourself recreate yourself, reinvent yourself, right? And um, I think that part of what um, makes me able to—I mean, we're the mouse that roared. We're this microcap penny stock that is somehow doing something huge. We only do it by being in a constant reinvention and going. Wait a minute, here, this is opportunity. Let's go for it. Let's do it. We move at the speed of light. Um, and that, I think, requires having this elasticity of a viewpoint that says, I'm not just a CEO. I'm not just a this, that, and the other thing. I am simply here to go for it. That's all. I, I don't even have an identity per se. I am, in a way, I am whatever mission I adopt at that moment, and then I'm the next mission or whatever it is. Um, because uh, I, I think that um, the ripples that come out of you, they are in a way you, is my way of saying it. Well, and listening to you, I mean, you do the same thing with sailing, right? When you spoke about sailing, it wasn't like you were just going to have a, a little, uh, what do they call it, a thistle, 
and uh, be on a tiny little lake. I mean, maybe you're going to do it, but you're going to go. And when you're skiing, you're going through the, the, the trees with the kids and you're showing them, let's go. When you're, you're wanting to sail to Hawaii, um, you know, when you had that two years with your, with, uh, you know, with your late wife, um, you, you went, you went to, you, you, you take the time and you go. And I, I just, it, it's just amazing, man. And again, it's cliche when people, when you hear people say the way you do one thing is the way you do everything, but you are the example of that. Like you're that embodied. And I, I just do it. I can't wait to force you to be my friend for the rest of your life. Riggs. You can't get rid of me, man. Well, what you're, you're blowing my mind here because part of what's happened, you know, anybody who's, I've been 14 years, a CEO of this company. I can't tell you some of the things that we've gone through there. There have been, there was one time, one month, we were literally down to credit cards with a bunch of staff and we're down to credit cards. I'm like, Oh Lord, people don't realize how much, and you've been through it too. We've, we've all been through these horrendous things and people don't realize it because here we are. And when I came out of it, my wife said two things. Number one, she says, Riggs, you are so, you're an amazingly persistent guy. And number two, she said, thank God you've emerged because I have been so stressed. And I realized that she had been more stressed than me watching me go through what I'd gone through. She'd been more stressed. And I literally, I had no idea that she'd gone through that. It was so tough on her, right? Because whatever, because we are so close or whatever it was, right? That, um, in a way, we don't realize the effect we have on others. Um, and the most important thing of all, and, and this is, you know, I, I think, I think um, because your wife skis or boards, which I, I, I'm willing to, to go with borders. I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. But, but, you know, we'll end up on slopes together. I know exactly where to take you guys at the, probably the best resort. I know, well, there's two. One is Powder Mountain in Utah. Amazing. Amazing. And the other one is Big Sky up north. Yes. Both of those. Those two places. God made those places. But we'll do it. And uh and that's you know, and you know what the typical conversation is <laughs> a chairlift. Yeah. That was good. Yeah. It's like you're saying nothing at all because <laughs> you're completely wasted and you just try and you just but you know, you just you're with each other. What else is there, right? Well, we're, we're going to do that, man. We have a house up in uh, Park City. And, uh, no and cool. so we're, we're going to do that and, and spend some time. And my wife, my wife is like, she is no joke on the slope. She is gangster. Um, you know, shout out to Brooklyn. Um, she is, she is the, I mean, she makes me feel bad about myself. It almost ended our relationship because she was so good. And I started when I was in my late 30s or early 30s. And you, you know, you have a job or you have a company. I had a company at the time and I was like, if I break something, I'm, I'm going to lose my, you know, I could lose some time. And, and she was just like barreling down the hills through the trees, no helmet, all the stuff. And I remember I got stuck because I went through the trees too, even though I shouldn't have, because I didn't know how to, but I sunk into the snow up to my chest and with the snowboard connected to your feet, you can't get out. And then I'm hot. And then I finally get out and she's like, don't worry. Everything's good. I was like, get away from me. Don't try and patronize me. And then as God would have it, my snowboard fell off my foot because I didn't have my leash on and it went 
all the way down the mountain and I'm standing there and she's like, no challenge, baby. Let's just sit on mine and go down the hill like a sled. And as opposed to me accepting my wife's amazing generosity, I told her, get away from me. Don't try and do that. And I walked my stubborn butt all the way down at Brighton. I was three quarters of the way up the mountain and I walked the whole way down because I'm so boneheaded and hardheaded. So I'm excited to have you in the mix. Uh, by the way, I've been there. Okay. I've Thank been you. there, literally. And, and in fact, just yesterday I did that. I, because I've, I've taken up the bar method again to get fit, but the bar method is wonderful to get like super fit for skiing. And, you know, it's all the way over in Tampa, trying to get figured out. And in the middle of it all, my wife asked me to do a, to drop something off. I'm like, and I snapped later on. I said, you know, sorry, sorry, I snapped. And she said, no, I, I asked you to do something that was, you know, dropped in the middle of your day. I said, yeah, it's true. I was literally trying to figure out, you know, 27 minutes to, you know, the, studio, et cetera. But we're to the point where, and I think you've probably reached that with Brooklyn is that we're good with it. You know, even if one of us blows up, we understand why the other ones blows up and it's fine. It's totally okay. That's a beautiful place to be. Oh man. I mean, she, she's just, she's awesome. I, I've, I'm, I'm bonehead a lot. So the whole reason, uh, Riggs is why we started the podcast because my two kids. So I have a, a son who's 11. His name is Maddox. You'll meet him. He's a car cartoon character. And this is the most joyous kid in life. Um, one time he came out with his, uh, and he had a hole in the back of his sweats and right. Uh, right at his knee. And I was like, how is this possible? Was he sliding? And then I realized his pants were backwards. And so I told Maddox, go back in. I call him boy. I was like, boy, because that's how my dad talked to me. He said, I said, boy, go back in and turn your pants around. They're backwards. He comes back out and the hole's in the same place. And I was like, boy, did you change your pants? He's like, nope. And I said, well, why not? He said, because I didn't want to. And I said, okay, son, but what are you going to do if somebody asks you why your pants are on backwards? And he looked at me and said, that's simple, dad. I'll just ask him why they're wearing theirs forward. And I was like, okay, that's Maddox style. So that's Maddox. My daughter, McKenna, is a, a, a performing arts uh, a person. She's in uh, eighth grade right now, and she's found her thing. She's in the performing arts, and she loves it. She loves, she wants to act, she wants to direct, she wants to write, and she's just this, this like, her heart is bigger than the whole world. I started the podcast because of the two of them, and I wanted to show them that iconic people like you weren't superheroes, that you were simply a human being that had a phenomenal attitude and crazy work ethic, and you've showed that today. What advice, Riggs, would you have for Maddox and McKenna, and if you could use both of their names, it would be awesome, and if you could call yourself Uncle Riggs before you start with it, too. So, message from Uncle Riggs? Well... First of all, Maddox and McKenna, you guys already know exactly what you're about. And one of the really good lessons in life is to keep going with what you started with, to not, um, quote unquote, um, change path because somebody said, oh, you better do this or that. You already know your path, it sounds like. And so keep on trucking. Just keep on trucking and put more and more momentum within, behind whatever you love doing you will do great. And that's, and plus, I don't know if you border ski, but I'm, if you're a boarder, I can do nothing for you. I have no idea how to teach borders, but if you're a skier, 
I know how to get you past intermediate into killer advanced uh, style, and I hope I can help you out with that. Can you tell them something in French? Because when you started speaking a little French, it was like, man, I, because I love having friends who make me seem even cooler. Like I have friends with tattoos. I don't have any tattoos. But can you say something to end the podcast in French? Because it just sounds so good. Well, there's a very good saying in French, which is, les goûts et les couleurs ne se discutent pas. There is no arguing tastes or colors. What that really says is you got to let people have do it their own way. And if they're going to be gaudy, it is what it is. Riggs, you're amazing, man. I, I, I really appreciate you. Um, for everyone out there listening, you know the podcast, you know the sponsors. Click the links, do all the stuff that you know you need to do. Um, but please do yourself a favor and all your friends a favor and all your family a favor. Share this podcast with them and let them know that they need to listen to it three times. One, all the way through. One, listen to the first and then listen to the end and then compare. And then the third time, listen to the end first and then watch how this man is so consistent on the highest level possible. And I just want to thank you again, Riggs. You are absolutely phenomenal. Uh, I can't wait to have you on the show again and I can't wait to spend some time in the snow, man. Kelly, we are going to do it. Thank you. It's been such a pleasure doing this. You're officially off the hot seat.